All right. What, um, what makes an expert? Someone who's curious, passionate, and dedicated, right? Someone who's spent years and years practicing and still studying the field. Well, today we're joined by a true expert in the area of data visualization. He's worked with too many companies to name, but they are Pfizer, Dyson, Google, Spotify, Hershey's, Unilever, Microsoft. It, it just, the list goes on. Um, he's also done extensive work with the football club Arsenal, and he's a Liverpool fan. It's interesting. Well, Andy Kirk, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, sure thing. This is such a pleasure. Uh, really excited for this chat. Um, the first thing that I want to ask as um, someone who is not an expert in data visualization is to you, what is data visualization really? Good question. Um, and this is something that the field at large is still battling over. Um, and some people have very narrow definitions, some people kind of broaden the, the definitions. And I tend to sit more on that side of things. I, I fundamentally think that DITIV is, is a philosophical pursuit. Now, people might be thinking, good grief, he's going deep already. <laughs> but what we're talking about here is visual communication data to help facilitate understanding. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make other people feel smarter about something. We're trying to help them to make better informed decisions. On some level, we might be trying to shock people, to convince them, to persuade them, to change behaviors, take actions. Most often it's quite low level, just little grains or granules of knowledge that might not even materialize as a decision for three, four, five years, who knows, ever. But I think fundamentally it's about facilitating understanding and that gives you, I think, a nice broad remit to, to put into that the charts, the, the classic visualization methods, but also other visual communication devices, imagery, photographs, drawings, illustrations. The, the boundaries between these classic distinct fields actually is blurring through technology, through creative techniques. But what binds it all together and what makes it worthwhile is if you're trying to help someone understand something. That's really helpful. Thank you. In the past, I've also heard you talk about a couple of things like it's really about the process and it's really about the human side. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Well, picking up the human side first, the, the fact is that we are talking about a situation where there's a, a, an equation. There's a, a person on one side, the visualizer, communicating to somebody else, a recipient, and that can be a singular or you know, multiple audience members. And when you introduce humans to both sides of this equation, you create complexities, you create imperfections, because it's always down to this sort of judgment, this subjective judgment that we make as visualizers to decide what to show people and how to show it, but also what to leave out, what not to show. And on the other side, it's people who have got a huge repertoire of things that they want to know and need to know. And this may or may not just be a single block that contributes towards that. So what characterizes the subject for me is, is complexity, perhaps more so than complicatedness. You know, there are complicated elements, technical elements that make it a, a difficult um, endeavor sometimes, but, but most often, it's quite simple. It's just there's lots of things to think about that have consequences for other things that you need to think about. And so back to the point about process, 
to organize and optimize our thinking through this chaos, we need uh, a strategy. We need to think about the right things at the right time in the right order and have um, a kind of a rubric to help make good choices, principles that will underpin every time we face a decision junction, we kind of know what we're doing and why. And it's not just, well, I like it or it, it feels good to me. It needs to be more sophisticated than that. So everything I do, whether it's writing, whether it's teaching, working, it's all for me, it's about process. So with, with Reboot, we are on a mission to figure out how companies can create stronger connections inside of them. And we talk a lot about leadership. We talk about communication. But we also talk about data. And I imagine that across this massive breadth of clients, massive organizations, really, that you work with, um, you've uh, seen firsthand what, um, what the challenges might be with getting data sharing and data visualization specifically right so that it actually can really connect with people. Um, just starting really broadly around that, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like working with large organizations that are trying to communicate better through data? I mean, I, I, yes, you're right. I have worked with lots of different organizations, but I think what's what struck me over the years is that when you go to a new organization, the, the problems, or let's be more positive, the opportunities are kind of the same or in the same realm, the same ballpark. I, I tend to work classically, but I guess it, there are two situations that I find myself in there for. Either I'm working with quite senior people who are trying to initiate a change in culture, improve things, become more visual, become more impactive in how they're using their data resource. And that becomes much more of a bigger picture, slow change program of, of improvements and education and literacy. Or it's people perhaps at um, a more modular level in a, in a department who may be a bunch of analysts. And they know themselves sort of locally without even the need for a intervention from the top that they need to improve because they recognize that others are doing things out there that might be more sophisticated than what they're doing. And I think what a lot of analyst groups like that find themselves is it, there's almost this trap, this trap that has two perspectives to it. There's a, a trap of inertia. We've always done these things and why, why change? No one's complaining or no one's disrupting things. So why, why upset the apple cart? But also this idea that things just always grow. We never stop doing things. I remember working for the police years ago as an analyst and all we did was add more and more reports. Every month, another report, another report. And we never stopped things. We never stopped monitoring that thing. We never stopped sending out that report. Even if there was maybe just one person in the entire organization who was still curious about that thing. And, and I think this, this growth then consumes departments and stops them having the ability and the space to to elevate themselves from the the churn and think why are we doing this what we're we trying to achieve how can we do that better so to have the chance to work with teams who have already done that awareness moment is fantastic but they've got them the battle to sell this internally and to sell this upwards the other side of the equation the senior people they've got the battle to change this oil tanker and the course of the direction 
and that's not an overnight thing. You know, you, you've got to have the people, as we're talking about, but you've also got to have the the wins and the victories, and the, and that's what makes it difficult because this is not necessarily always a tangible thing. We don't always witness the success of a good visualization. It sometimes is quite subtle. It happens to different people than we expect. It happens not at the moment of them first encountering that piece. It happens not in isolation from other things. You know, we get lots of information from different origins. So it's a difficult thing to do well, but if you don't, you will you will not fully realize the potential that we have in this, I mean, it's a cliche, but the data that we all have to work with. It's, it's sat there, let's do more with it. The other thing around that that I wanted to ask you about very specifically, and you touched on it a little bit, but it's really um, a scenario that I've seen quite a bit in, in the different organizations that I've touched over the years. It's just about things being collected and, and stored, right? Data is, yeah. you know, oh, okay, let's let's grab some data. Let's be about data. Let's, let's get it. Let's make sure it's there. Um, and then it doesn't always go where it needs to go from there. And as a very, as a simple out, simple person, an outsider, right? I'm thinking, well, it shouldn't be so hard, but what are the actual challenges and the roadblocks you think inside organization that prevents people from taking a fairly logical step of, you know, freeing the data or like mm. actually being intentional about visualizing it and getting it in front of the right people what are the real things that's blocking that from happening uh, as much as it probably should and probably will in the future? I, I think the biggest blockage is um, humans, <laughs> unfortunately, because we have the tech, we have the, the analytical skills, we have the, you know, collectively in organizations, we have the awareness that this is an important resource to tap into and, and to utilize and to exploit and, in the best way of the word, exploit. But what you often find is that people don't quite know what other people need to know. And those other people don't quite know how to let other people know that they need to know this thing. I mean, that, there's a little bit of a sort of vortex there, but one of the most crucial stages in the process that I always um, teach or write about is a stage that I call editorial thinking, which is the least technical stage, but the most impactful, in my view, that separates good from bad, great from average. And this is about questions. Now, I mean, even in my own book title, I call this data-driven design, but actually, before data happens, there's curiosity. Someone asks a question about, I wonder how many, I wonder where, I wonder when something's happened. And I think we lose sight of that because Working from the point of a chart, which offers a visual answer to a data question, we sometimes just push charts out. We just push out all these answers without knowing who's got the question that that answers. And is it the right question that's been answered? Or are we just, as you say, are we just giving people answers to questions that no one's even bothered about anymore? Because that, that's not a thing. That's not a phenomenon we are we're curious about. So... I think the biggest thing for organizations to do better is, is to think about the understanding that they are lacking, that data can help to, to, to plug. 
and visualization will be just one part of the armory to, to join those two ends together. So when we see the, the organizations that have now almost to a certain degree solved the data collection problem, they've solved the data storage problem, they've solved the, do we have the tech that lets us to analyze and publish this stuff? What you're often missing then is that almost the final stages have we got this natural, almost journalistic curiosity? Do we get to the real heart of a story? Do we understand systems and how to make complex, um, complex stories come alive? Because the other part of this is it, it's too simple to just focus on one narrow perspective. We should embrace complexity. We should embrace that there's lots of systematic connections in lots of operations in organizations and people. And if we just boil that down to a single metric, it sometimes misses the point. We do need to be um, not fearful of complexity, but just make sure that whatever we do to enlighten people through understanding, that we don't create obstacles, that we don't use visual methods that distort or confuse, that we don't use uh, language that isn't human language. You know, people receiving these things are humans. We like to just see normal language and, and description so again I, I just come back to the the main blockage is people and that's potentially also the easiest thing to improve upon because we can do better what's the current state of data literacy right now and uh, how is that trending it's a really interesting question because i think if we look at where we are in the world today and you know some of your viewers and listeners may have heard of this pandemic that's going around right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is something that touches everybody on this planet. Um, there are people who are quickly, as members of the public, having to learn about epidemiology and about viruses and about disease and about all sorts of different things that is, yes, while this is a, a, it's a health pandemic, it's also in some respects a data pandemic because we're now having to educate and inform people about something that is a rapidly changing context that's complex, that involves imperfect data, that involves things that are the most human things possible, which is life and death matters. And it's forcing us as citizens to be more literate. It's asking us questions about how we understand data. Do we have um, agency with the data? Do we have access to it? Do we? Do we trust people who are the custodians of this data? So if you asked me this question a year ago, I would probably be less optimistic. And although what's happening now is a horrible thing, it's something that is forcing us to, to have this step forward in embracing data charts and knowledge that comes from this stuff. So I'm more positive than I would have been about a year ago. Because this, has, I think this has just been accelerating as an issue of the last six, nine to nine months, really. I wanted to get to your framework uh, for thinking about data visualization. I believe there might be a certain number of hats. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, let let me just um, declare this is very much uh, motivated and inspired by De Bono's six thinking hats that some people may be aware of. And certainly I, I covered in my degree all those years ago. Um, the seven hats of data viz design 
is my attempt to organize the skills, the knowledge, the talents, the capabilities, the attitudes and the aptitudes that one needs as an individual to be considered a superhero all-rounder in this field because this is a again this is not necessarily a complicated activity but it's complex because there's lots of moving parts lots of interdisciplinary multidisciplinary perspectives you need to be technically capable you need to be creatively capable you need to be good with data you need to have a scientific um rigor around stats and around the the theories of how a brain and the eye work together you need to be a good journalist you need to be a good director and organizer you need to be a good communicator and sympathetic to an audience and people on both sides of the equation there are lots of elements to this and so my attempt to make sense of the almost the tariff or the profile that creates this notion of a perfect visualizer for which i mean it's, it's a unicorn I can probably list about six or seven people who do tick all these boxes because it's such a rare talent. But what this is doing is not an attempt to overwhelm people, to say, oh, I will never be all that. No, you won't, and I will not be. But it gives you a chance to do two things. First of all, to understand your strengths is as much to define your weaknesses and where you are not. I'm not gonna be ever a good, talented programmer and I'm cool with that now. But I know that for some visualization projects, the need to program to create things for the web will be present. I can therefore talk to people who have those talents. I have enough awareness of what goes into being a good programmer to discuss things to a certain level, but then realize, right, you are the expert on this, but let's work together. I know there are plenty of people out there who are great with data, but that possibly may lack, as we've spoken about, that journalistic flair, or may lack that creative expression. So this is an attempt to organize the skills to say, here's who I am, here's who I could be if I can develop and practice and learn, but also here's who I will never be, so what do I do to compromise, to trade off? I'll work with others. Um, and this is also something that hopefully helps to direct organizations to, to target their development. So they're into learning and teaching their education packages, but also to find the right blend so that they piece together a team of three, four five people with the right repertoire of skills and not just something that leans too heavily towards, you know, all these people great with data but none of them actually have this flair to think about communicating to people. All these people are wonderful artists, but none of them know how to do a, a VLOOKUP in Excel. So we, we, we need to use this to, just to find the right blend, and then you will have the best chance of creating the best work that will have the most impact. There's no simple answer, but how do you tell that person, the leadership, how to start thinking about this really with that framework in mind mm. some of the other things you've shared like how do you actually get into this so that you get off on the right foot so to speak it's a multifaceted answer really i mean the first thing is always to take stock you know where are we right now where do we do things well where do we do things less well where do we think there's perhaps a little bit of a wasted effort being being made and that's the point i made before about stop doing that 
you know, that no longer is actually a viable use of skilled time. There also needs to be a reckoning about the, the talent that's on board already, because it may be that you already have, let's say, um, a super capable journalistic type of person, but their role is currently not um, facilitating that skill set to come out. In fact, it's maybe suppressing that, that talent. So maybe there's a sense that this is not solved by, as you said before, a single appointment or two or three appointments, nor is it necessarily just to say, right, um, department of analysts, do this stuff better, please. It may be realigning the existing talent pool that you have and just deploying them almost virtually as a, as a collective, connected group of individuals who bring different talents to the table, but then you can mobilise as a as a unit that cuts across the, the classic vertical boundaries that we often find. This is, you know, this should not be just seen as a, a service area. And, you know, you ring up and say, can I have a visualisation about this, please? That's something that if we look at the, the media and, you know, most of the best visualisation examples these days in a public uh, setting, at least, come from the news media. Um, you know, in the States, you look at the New York Times, you look at the Washington Post, for example. 10, 15 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, let's say, they had the classic model of the graphics person who was the last person who was involved in any project. And you had the, the old kind of classic smoky journalist wandering up with a, a sketch on the back of a napkin from the, the pub the night before. And they said, make this look pretty for the, for, the, uh, for the print tomorrow. They were the end of the line. They were the pretty fires. But the Times and the, graphic, uh, the Washington Post, what they've done is they've brought those talents right the way forward to the start of the editorial process to, to, to bring them to the same parity as a journalist, a reporter, to say, look, tell us what the opportunities are with this, this story. Do you think you could get some data about this thing to help us to, to enrich the, the text that we will write with graphics and imagery? And they work in a partnership through the development of a story Neither one, the reporter or the graphics person, is above the other. They work together. And so on that, in that spirit, I think organisations should not just see visualisation or analysis as, a, as this sort of separate function of all these people locked away over there. They need to be much better integrated into the workings and the operations of any organisation to, to understand systems. Again, going back to the point I made before, to understand what's important, to understand what people don't know, and to know what people do know. Right, fine, let's leave that. What don't you know? What would help you do your job better, faster, quicker, more efficiently? These are all the questions that, you know, I mean, my, my background is in operational research, so you are looking at complex problems, but each of those has an opportunity to, to be improved, to be optimised. And so the closer these talents are to the, the operations, I mean, just simply the better it will, it will be. I wanted to, before we wrap up, I wanted to get to a shared passion of ours. Um, what I've learned though, is that your passion runs way deeper than, than mine. I thought I was passionate about this. Um, we are of course talking about, let's see if we can uh, see my, my beautiful t-shirt here. Oh, excellent. The, uh, the world's greatest television show, um, Seinfeld. <laughs> Uh, so I'm still 
truly blown away by the work you've done around this. But for people who don't know, please, please share. So the Seinfeld Chronicles, um, as you said, shared passion. So I was watching the show maybe three, four years ago. Um, as a fairly late arrival to the show, I, mean, I missed it the first time around in, in the UK. But as somebody who's, again, going back to the point of uh, process and systems, I remember sort of wondering and being curious about the show, about how it, would, how it had been written. How did Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David write the show and how did they sort of deploy their resources? And I kind of looked at Seinfeld almost as a, as a sporting team. How did they use their different skills in their in their group and so I was kind of curious about this and I wondered about the possibility of capturing some data from watching the show about which characters were used and when and to what extent both within scenes but also as deliverers of comedy of dialogue and so I embarked on capturing every episode 176 episodes within each episode every five seconds who was in the scene, uh, which scene number was it, uh, who got the laugh, and what location were they in. So again, using the sense of locations and sets as another branch of resource usage. So I did three episodes, and then the hero of the piece, which is my uh, brother-in-law, Rob, he did 173, based on my kind of established counting, <laughs> counting rules. And this huge, a bunch of spreadsheets was sort of sat there for ages because it was a passion project and normal work takes over inevitably. But finally, during lockdown, I had the, the opportunity to sit back and think, right, let's do this. And so, yeah, I went on a voyage of discovery and, and analysis to tease out some analysis and the, the products that is the end game of this the Seinfeld Chronicles, which was the name of the original pilot episode. This chronicles the, the show through, well, to begin with, a bunch of analysis, but then you've got individual episodes captured where you've got like a little breakdown of the characters, when they've appeared, who gets the laughs, what locations they are in, and then some sort of summary perspectives at the end. So there's one of those for every one of the 176 episodes. You can see on the outer edge, you've got the, the bleed, which groups together the seasons. Um, and then at the front, I've just done a ton of analysis about the, the summaries. You know, who was the funniest? Who was the most used? Where was the most used location? And um, yeah, so I ended up writing a book. But this is not a book on general release, unfortunately, because this is something that I've uh, printed 176 copies of one for every episode and then very kind people are donating to get a copy and then the proceeds are going to uh, to two charities because uh, I felt it was something that needed to be more than just a passion project that sits there on a dusty shelf in fact these are the boxes behind me there the stocks um, this was something I thought would would be nice at this point in time where we are right now to to do something just to make a small a small gesture to uh, to two charities so yeah, it's um, been a great deal of work, huge number of hours, but um, I'm actually quite happy with it, which is un unusual for me, actually. Man, yeah, I, I, I don't actually know what to say because 
partly it's just I'm I'm so obsessed with the show and the fact that somebody has gone that deep is just mind blowing. But also just the um, the angles that you've picked for this uh, with the charity, etc., and the fact that uh, <laughs> that I was able to get my hands on one of these copies is is just it truly. Um, truly is a highlight a highlight of an otherwise <laughs> shitty year right yeah yeah um, absolutely. so yeah really thank you for doing that for all the Seinfeld fans out there I imagine that even though not everybody can get a book there might be something to to see around this uh, on the web yeah there is a digital version so basically a, a pdf uh, online pdf so that will we'll share some links for that so people can access it they just can't lift it up and smell it and flip through it so that's the that's what's missing yeah, yeah, yeah. Coffee table book about coffee tables or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hey, thank you, um, Andy. It's been a real pleasure. Um, yeah, well, we really appreciate you being generous with your time and your knowledge. Um, so thank you so much for this. Um, what's the best way for people to follow you? Probably website, so visualizingdata.com for my American friends. I'm afraid it's with an S all the way. And um, on Twitter, at visualizingdata.com, at visualizingdata. Um, Twitter is very much an active space for visualization discussions and discourse, and I guess as well as LinkedIn. That's uh, that's really kind of speeding up over the last sort of 12 months as well. So they're the, they're the main places. Wonderful. Well, perfect. Thank you again. We really appreciate you. Thank you.